Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. I have my PhD in history, but I'm an expert in whooping it up. Woohoo! White gloves and dirty documents. That's how this historian gets down. I am JMZ. I'm a doctor, and my prescription is more shade. Hello, welcome back to Historians on Housewives. You're here with me, Casey. Dr. Jane Mill, the millionaireist. Max Beer. In this episode, we chat with Dr. Zuzana Krivoskaya about their forthcoming book, Disgraced, How Sex Scandals Transformed American Protestantism. In the first half of this episode, Susanna is going to help us understand how to think about scandal and the relationship between sexuality, religion, and community. After breaking down concepts like the Second Great Awakening and Prosperity Gospel, Susanna is going to use their work to help us analyze the Real Housewives of Salt Lake City and the Real Housewives of Potomac in the second half of our show after the Bonko Party game break. Susanna Krivolskaya is an assistant professor of history at California State University, San Marcos, where she teaches courses in United States religion, gender, sexuality, and digital history. Krivolskaya studies the relationship between sexuality and religion. Her first book, Disgraced How Sex Scandals Transformed American Protestantism, forthcoming from Oxford University Press, is a sweeping religious and cultural history of ministerial sex scandals in the 19th and 20th centuries. Kruvelskaya's work has appeared in both academic journals and popular outlets and was honored by the 2019-2020 Virginia Ramey Mullencott Award from the LGBTQ Religious Archives Network. So with that... Welcome to the show, Susanna. Would you like to share your Real Housewives tagline with us? I would love to. It is. I may look like a tired teenage boy, but trust me, I'm an aging gay man inside. (laughs) 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 That's funny. I love it. I approve. I approve. (laughs) Thank you. So it's true. I get I get mistaken for uh, for a teenage boy all of the time. Um, and yet I have these old gay men interests in, you know, Broadway and pickleball and other things. <laughs> That's hilarious. Pickleball is the new thing. Pickleball. pickleball. Pickleball is huge. Yeah, I've been playing. Mm-hmm. Was that a pandemic hobby that you acquired? It would have found me either way, but yes. <laughs> That's cool. 
<laughs> so let's jump right in and talk about your academic journey. What do you work on and how has your academic journey evolved? Sure. Um, it's a little bit complicated, convoluted. I'll try to make it brief. Uh, my way of teenage rebellion was to become a conservative evangelical. So I converted, I grew up in Minsk, Belarus. I converted through a group of American missionaries. Um, and then I went to college to this Christian school in Lithuania that was also started by American and Canadian missionaries. And I wanted to study theology and become a missionary just like my friends. And then things got more complicated because college um, and because I was also struggling with uh, figuring out my own sexuality um, and learning that the world was way more complicated than my evangelical brethren would have had me believe. So it was actually, and this is connected to my academic interest, because as I was sort of navigating these issues and wrestling with my theology, uh, the 2006 scandal of the one of the biggest celebrity ministers um, at the time, Ted Haggard, broke. He was mm. um, caught, um, well, or, or rather, the man he'd been seeing um, as a sex worker and a supplier of occasional crystal meth went to the press to say that they'd had this, you know, ongoing relationship. And that man, Mike Jones, hadn't realized that Seth Haggard was actually a conservative a Christian who was at the time advocating against um, same-sex marriage and things like that. So as the scandal was unfolding, I was figuring out my own path um, in life and, and academic interests. And so I, I, after college, went to Yale Divinity School to study uh, religion with an emphasis on women's gender and sexuality studies. And it was really there that I became persuaded that academia was the way to go. I took a few years to apply to schools and, and, and figure out a program that would give me a full ride. Um, and then three years later, I started at Washington University in St. Louis. And then I finished my degree at Notre Dame uh, because my advisor transferred there. And so I wrote a dissertation that is, in retrospect, wild. It covers way too long of a time period. I start in the 1830s and I go through the late 1990s. And it tracks um, the biggest, but also some of the lesser known or not at all yet known, um, sex scandals involving Protestant ministers. And um, that project is currently uh, being edited um, at Oxford University Press. Hopefully it will be published as a book next year. Um, well, hopefully. It will definitely be published as a book, but hopefully next year. Um, and there are many stories sort of to be told, and we'll, we'll get to some of them in our conversation today, I hope. But um, I'm, I'm especially interested in moments of rupture in this long history, uh, moments when scandal for the first time in many cases, enabled public discussions of previously taboo subjects um, with regard to religion and sexuality. And so they are unfortunately rare, but when they did happen throughout this history, they were meaningful. So I try to focus on that in the book. Well, that gives us a perfect segue into the book. So let me just say congratulations on the soon to be published book. Um, uh, Disgraced, How Sex Scandals Transformed American Protestantism. Um, 
we should pause here because Max, if Max was here, he'd give us the applause. <laughs> Ooh, is that you, Casey? <laughs> it was, but then I thought I could turn it off if I hit it again, and instead it was just a multiple standing ovation. So. <laughs> Amazing, thank you. <laughs> so, so tell us, you just you started hinting to this in your in your answer just a moment ago, but tell us how we should understand the definitions of scandal and Protestantism in your work. Can you tease sure. that out for our listeners, please? Yeah. So, for the purposes of of my specific research, I, I define scandal as a series of media events that expose a private transgression of a public figure in a way mm. that undermines the espoused beliefs or values of that individual. So there's a level of hypocrisy involved in that, right? Um, I talk in the introduction about how, you know, a one-off sensation might be um, you know, a husband cheating on his wife. We know plenty of those from the housewives, right? But a scandal really has to sort of have a story and a series of events. And again, for my purposes for the study of religion, it has to really bring to light the difference between a public figure's, you know, alleged beliefs mm-hmm. and theological commitments and their actual behavior. And then in terms of Protestantism, um, you know, I find it's really helpful to, to flag this for students. Uh, sometimes all the different denominational names are complicated, but uh, essentially it's, a, it's one of the, one of several Christian groups, um, of the non-Catholic and non-Orthodox variety. And Protestantism includes both mainline churches, uh, churches like Episcopalian or Presbyterian, as well as evangelical, fundamentalist, um, and then Pentecostal denominations, of which there are hundreds of different varieties. So Protestants are Christians who split off from the Catholic Church in the 16th century and have evolved and reinvented themselves in all kinds of ways through different movements and denominations. So I was wondering, how should we think about the relationship between sexuality and religion? And the thing that comes to mind for me is the shock students have when I'm talking about something like, for example, Puritan bundling boards. And it's not necessarily Mm -hmm. a perception of like sexless religious people, but certainly I feel like um, almost like this popular historical memory of a very restrained uh, heteronormative Mm -hmm. conjugal kind of sex and sexual identity. And so um, I was wondering, are these kinds of notions that we still have now contributing to these ideas of scandal? And what is this line between religion and sexuality? Yeah, yeah. Huge question. I'll try to talk a little bit of it. Um, that the example you give is great. In addition, uh, many Puritans believed in such radical notions that conception could only occur if orgasm was achieved. Um, so actually, they cared deeply about pleasure in a way that I think we don't think about very much. They also recommended like relaxation and wine and foreplay before intercourse, which sounds uh, modern and quite lovely as an idea. Um, so I think. It's fair to say that all religions have a lot to say about sex, even when what they say about sex are prohibitions. 
Um, but religion is intrinsically tied to sex and sexuality. So it's really important to evaluate the claims that religion makes about sexuality, as well as the claims that various sexual revolutions make about religion. I think why scandal is such a productive mode of inquiry when it comes to religion and sex is precisely because of the centrality of sex to all or most religious movements and theologies. In U.S. Protestantism in particular, you know, here's a religion that has, since the beginning of the nation, and even long before the nation existed, laid claims on the morality of the entire experiment. As historian um, Armory Griffith points out in her latest book, Moral Combat. So when you make claim about the sexual morality of the nation, but fail to live up to them yourself, we come across a fairly serious problem. Um, what's surprising, though, and maybe it's not at all surprising, and we should all be just jaded, um, is just how little scandals revelations seem to actually change anything. Like, for most of the history I described in the book, the majority of the ministers sort of got away with whatever scandalous conduct they engaged in. Um, in fact, what often happened as a result was not some rethinking of their theology um, that was clearly hard to live up to, but rather an invention of a better system of secrecy and silencing so that their bad secrets did not become public. And we see this, of course, in the Catholic Church, too, but this is true for Protestants as well. I really love this point that you just made, because I think so often we're thinking about change over time, but I think lack of change over time is just as important mm -hmm. to hone in on as as historical trend. Yeah, yeah. Since we were talking about definitions, um, how is the usage of evangelical similar to or different from Protestantism? And I also, my follow-up is, I wonder um, if you can put Pentecostal um, in perspective as well. You don't have to. That wasn't part of the initial plan. But I just, I, as, you were think, as you were speaking, I was thinking about Pentecostalism as well. Yeah, great question. So evangelical and Pentecostal are subsets of Protestantism. Okay, um, great. In contemporary usage, and, and there are many, as you can imagine, historians love to debate about like periodization and also definitions, right? So, but in contemporary usage, evangelical is a Protestant disposition that emerged from the fundamentalist modernist crisis of the 1920s. Um, think about the evolution debates, right? All, all that kind of a grappling with modernity that happened then. And evangelicalism prioritizes a literal reading of the Bible, personal salvation, experiential salvation, and a commitment to converting others. So Billy Graham was perhaps the most famous evangelical of the 20th century, and he exhibited all of these features, preaching to convert the lost, and then even meddling with politics to influence the course of events in U.S. history. Evangelicals are a large, loosely affiliated group, uh, and some of their churches are labeled evangelical. Some sort of um, call themselves non-denominational, but you will find these same characteristics within them. As of 2015, um, they made up 55% of all U.S. Protestants, which in turn make up around 40 to 50% of all U.S. citizens. Uh, Pentecostalism 
emerged in the early 20th century and certainly shares with evangelicalism some of its commitments, particularly this idea of experiential salvation. Um, but it also differs, and the two groups have not always seen eye to eye on things throughout the course of the 20th century. Um, but in Pentecostal um, worship services tend to be more charismatic, more focused on the kind of communal experience of the divine. Um, they also have some theologies that I think we'll touch on later in terms of prosperity gospel and things like that. But that hopefully that helps a little bit. I know it's just complicated. Oh, that was great. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. So we have a new Sister Wives season starting in September. Uh, Netflix Woo-hoo! just had their uh, Stay Sweet documentary come out about uh, Warren Jeffs and Mormon fundamentalism. And mm-hmm. so this brings us to this question about the difference between religions and cults and how do you, you know, what do you do with that in your work? Are, are these things cults? Are they religions? What is, what are shared things between these definitions how are they different right so cult is a term that comes up very often in popular culture but also the brevaverse um and i along with a cohort of other scholars are on our little soapboxes screaming about (laughs) how not actually useful this term is um, so I, I'm borrowing here from scholars like Megan Goodwin, Matthew Schmaltz, and Judith Weidenfeld to say that calls for better or worse has come to get used to label certain things as bad and other things as good, right? That, that it's a different, as soon as we say that something is a cult, uh, we sort of dismiss it as a not legitimate religious movement. Um, there are these ideas about people being brainwashed and, and these unhinged religious leaders and, and ideas about abuse. And those things, you know, might happen in all kinds of environments. Um, they're not unique to quote unquote cults. In addition, if we sort of dig deeper into why certain religious movements get labeled as cults and others don't, we we quickly realized that a variety of established quote-unquote religions meet our de- initial definition of cult. Oh, absolutely. So I, yeah. So I just want to, you know, caution, uh, and students always get confused because I have them watch um, the uh, the Jonestown documentary, and then I have them read an article by Matthew Schmaltz about the lack of usefulness of the term. And, and they, they come to it and they say, well, how am I supposed to think about this? Like, clearly people died, right? This was a terrible event. Um, and then I, I tell them, well, think about what work it does to simply label the cult instead of sort of trying to understand the actual intrinsic motivations of the people who believed um, the project and who were murdered as a result by this um, completely nutty, abusive leader. So anyway, so, so the, the term I and others uh, suggest that we use instead is new religious movements, um, mm. and that kind of removes the stigma that, that's associated with the word cult. I think this is I, so important. Oh, sorry, Jessica, because I just, I thought about even in the first season of Sister Wives where Cody Brown was really insistent that they were putting 
um, a happy, healthy face to polygamy that he was even drawing that line with his wives about, you know, there is their religious polygamy. And then he was like, and Warren Jeffs is the cult and we're not that. And we're going to show you how Uh great polygamy can be. Right. So even we see that sort of working of like good versus bad forms of the religion and the religious practice, even within the pop Mm -hmm. culture that you're talking about. Only to find out that Cody is a bad example of polygamy. <laughs> hey, he, he wants out of it. He's tired. Mm. Four wives was too many, it turns out. But, he, <laughs> you know, he's right in many ways. Like, actually, the way that they're living their lives, at least in terms of the familial arrangement, is, in fact, closer to what, you know, the prophets intended. You know, when we look at it, so if we think of cult as something new, right? then Cody is doing religion the correct way. He's actually adhering to some older tradition. Oh, sorry. I'm quiet because I wanted I want to probe just a bit further, not about Cody, but about mm-hmm. your previous um comment that there are some religions if we look at closer, we could say that they fit the definition of cult or if we want to rephrase it, new religious um, traditions. I'm just wondering if you feel comfortable going on record or if you've talked about in your own research what some of these religions are that we might recognize um, as a traditional religion, but we might not have thought about as a cult. Well, if, if the focus is sort of on, say, abuse, right, which is how a lot of these uh, docu-series that we've seen in the last few years get labeled and marketed well you could look at the catholic church and the amount of of abuse and the cover-up of that abuse right through systematic structures of charismatic authority and power um so on that level we would also have to define the catholic church as a cult we don't you know i Mm -hmm. think that's right Uh, but i'm just pointing out that the kind of arbitrary lines that we draw between the groups that are like super weird because they're new and less weird because we're just (laughs) used to them. They are in fact arbitrary. And and that's something to think about as we label certain movements um, as less healthy and and less uh, appropriate than others. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. So, um, so we're going to move to prosperity gospel. Um, <laughs> which can be so illuminating for so so many reasons. Can you tell us how you define prosperity gospel? How do you think it relates to the Real Housewives? And it, for myself, I'm thinking about Mary Cosby mm-hmm. or even possibly Jamal Bryant. And I would even take it even further and say some, in some ways, uh, Phaedra's work as a bluntician slash healer. So mm-hmm. how would you define prosperity gospel and where do we see it in house, in the Housewife series? Yeah, so it's a relatively recent concept that emerges alongside of Pentecostal Christianity. Um, and it's this idea among some Pentecostal groups that God would reward all who believe with health and wealth. Mm-hmm. Um, you see... You know, a lot of good done uh, with this this ideology, this theology, for example, during the Great Depression, when uh, black churches in particular would, you know, feed the poor. Um, because, again, God makes sure that all God's children are taken care of. 
But you also see this migrate into kind of positive thinking slash secret in ideologies um, and encounter it quite often, sometimes in secular, oftentimes in secular terms in the housewives world. It's this idea that because God loves you, God is going to grant all material necessities of your life, including good health and wealth, but only if you are diligent enough um, about asking for them. So it's this name it and claim it idea that I think not only uh, the housewives, most of them I think would actually buy into, maybe they wouldn't say it overtly, um, but they're convinced that good things are coming for them if only they focus on the positive and put it out on, on their vision boards, you know, <laughs> that kind of an idea. Uh, it's a very pervasive cultural trope that's not unique to religion, not unique to Pentecostalism, uh, but it does have roots in it. Uh, Mary Cosby definitely falls into this, as does Jamal Bryant, you know, based on a couple of sermons of his that I that I watched. I'm not uh, a Bryantologist, um, <laughs> but I want. I'm curious uh, if you could say more about Phaedra. It's been a minute since she's been in Atlanta. Um, how is she a prosperity gospel person? Well, I'm just you know I'm thinking, and you know, maybe I'm, I'm you know I'm out, I'm also doing some slippage with with she and her mother. Um, you know, morticians, of course, involved in the the art of not just preparing your dead, the dead for um, you know final viewing of the family, but also their spiritual work involved. But I just wonder, mm-hmm. and again, this is probably a stretch. It just kind of came to me, um, and no, I wasn't drinking or imbibing in any substances. I was just thinking <laughs> about the way in which um, there's this sense, again, like you said at the church, if you if you do things particular ways, the right favor will come to you. And mm-hmm. because preparing the dead is also seen as a religious act, and mm-hmm. Phaedra absolutely decided to be a mortician because the money involved, I, it's like a metaphor that I, or a, a metaphor that I haven't teased out yet. Um, but I'm just wondering if we can put it in that same category, or if it's just you know, she has she's she became a mortician because she's a capitalist and Atlanta is expensive. So it's not even something <laughs> it's not even something I teased out on my own. Um, I was just I'm just thinking about it. Um, certainly Jamal Bryant, um, you know, for our listeners who may not know, Jamal Bryant is not just Giselle's ex husband, but then he took over Eddie Long's church of New Birth in Atlanta, which is definitely a prosperity gospel church. Mm-hmm. Um, I do not know Mary Cosby. I know the Mary Cosby family, and they definitely, definitely um, are a prosperity gospel kind of um, religion. Not just for what we've seen on um, television, but you know, having grown up in Utah and seeing the kind of wealth that that church once held, they absolutely um, were were people into prosperity gospel. Do we see any other examples of prosperity gospel um, in the housewives? I mean. I don't want to link it just to African Americans in, in this particular conversation. Mm-hmm. Do you think we see it elsewhere? Uh, well, I don't know if Alexis, um, what's her name? The OC. Alexis Bellino. Yeah. Bellino. Yeah. And then also, who was that? Um, a very petite uh, woman who had a husband and they had a magazine and they were. Christian, like oh, conservative it, Christians. It wasn't Megan. It was, I know who you're talking about, but she came in after Alexis left. She had the mom, County. she had the mom that had the fairy dust. 
Lydia. Yes. Who is that, Katie? Lydia. Lydia. There we go. Thank you. Yeah. I wonder, you know, again, I have Lydia McLaughlin is her, is her name. There we go. I couldn't remember enough about what they explicitly said about their beliefs, but they certainly would leave. I mean, judging by their lifestyles alone and the kind of combination of, you know, secular pursuits of wealth and fairly conservative Christian theologies, I would not be surprised to find out that they too um, uh, partake in some prosperity gospel <laughs> theology. Yeah, especially with their, their proximity to mega churches in um, Orange mm-hmm. County. That's what I was going to say. Don't we have some people that attend um, Saddleback Church? Don't some of the OC people attend Saddleback? Um, why am I blanking on the pastor's name that everyone knows? Um, uh, Rick, Rick Warren? Yes. Don't we have some yeah. Rick Warren? People, I, I feel like yeah, we I do. Think, I feel like Alexis Bellino and Jim and Jim Bellino when they were still married might have been there. Um, I know that Shannon Bedore goes to the mega church right next to the UC Irvine campus. That's on like the border of the UC oh, wow. Irvine campus. Oh, Mariners, right, right behind us. That mega church or a different mega church? That one, yeah, with the really nice farmers market on Saturday. That's exactly what I was going to say. For our <laughs> listeners outside of Southern California, there's a lovely farmers market. That happens every Saturday at Shannon Bedore's church. And I will say, for the record, their thrift store at, at Mariner's Church is quite nice because it has donations from the lovely Newport Beach community. Of course. So they, that's a perfect example of a mega church that um, believes in prosperity gospel. So thank you for that. I just I, I wanted to make sure that what I was remembering from the OC was right, that we have some mega churches uh, involved in the OC as well that can be linked right. to prosperity gospel. So thank you for, for um, going down that road with me. Of course. Thank you. So <clears throat> your work spans this large time period between 1830 and the 1990s. And so I, this coincides with the second great awakening. And so I was hoping you'd be able to, um, kind of define that for the listeners. And then I was wondering, has there been a third great awakening? And if there has, how is it different to, or similar, different from, or similar to the, the second great awakening? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so historians, again, love debating when a particular era started and ended. Uh, but roughly speaking, the second great awakening took place in the first three decades of the 19th century, 1795 to 1835 is the sort of arbitrary, um, arbitrary boundaries of that, of that era. Um, and it, this was a time when the descendants of Puritans, who were now known as the Congregational Church, had grown complacent. Um, and new, young, charismatic itinerant preachers from other denominations, like the Methodists and the Baptists, sort of swooped in to preach their own version of the gospel. They would hold these around-the-clock, multi-day tent meetings with singing and preaching and emotional outbursts of religious conversion and experience. Women were encouraged to speak in public. African Americans were sometimes invited to join as well. It had this egalitarian spirit about it, uh, but the movement was not without its critics, too, um, there was a, a kind of like contemporary joke that during these revival tent meetings, more souls were made than were saved, right? Um, that people got pregnant and made babies. 
instead of saving souls. Um, That's hilarious, and I believe it. <laughs> um, in fact, one of my stories, uh, the, the, the book opens with um, a story of a Methodist minister who was one of these itinerant preachers and a factory girl um, who met him, and they had an affair. She got pregnant and then told him, and then he killed her. And um, the, the country grappled with sort of what this meant for Methodism, right? Because here's this new religion with British origins, and we're still not over the Revolutionary War. Um, and here are these charismatic preachers who are doing things to our formerly good Puritan women. Um, how, what are we going to do about that? Uh, but in, in terms of the other awakenings, you know, again, some people say there are four great awakenings. I only ever teach the two. Um, but, you know, if we were to look for the third and the fourth, the third would probably be at the, at the end of the 19th century and early 20th century when uh, all kinds of new religious movements begin to pop up. Uh, spiritualism is really important, which allows women to, um, you know, channel spirits and lead religious spiritual seances. There are also ways in which religion informs social activism on all kinds of fronts. And then it, it seems to me that the mid-20th century and, and Billy Graham's crusade are another time of religious awakening in the nation when he really galvanizes people to not only convert to his particular brand of conservative Christianity, but to also then get really engaged politically to remake the nation in this image of conservative Christianity as well. Given all of this, because clearly you watch reality television, I also have followed some of your tweets and I find you just quite funny. I actually didn't realize until um, really late in the conversation that you were also the same person that I follow. It wasn't really until really late until we were doing the treatment that I said, oh, I'm so excited. <laughs> so how did you get into reality TV and what Bravo shows do you watch? Well, I used to be... Um deeply bravophobic, um, but my friend and roommate, Abby, <laughs> um, at Yale Divinity School, we were living together, and she was a bravo evangelist, and I remember slowly getting completely hooked on whatever season of the Beverly Hills Housewives that dealt with Taylor Armstrong's husband's abuse and eventual suicide, and I, I just, it just really moved me, and it, it was so disturbing and seemed like a really important thing to sort of witness on television. So I got deeply invested. Um, and then after, from there, I just, it was it was all lost for me. I turned to season one of New York Housewives, finished that very quickly, caught up with most other franchises, um, in addition to now being addicted to shows like Southern Charm, which is just so problematic on so many levels, and yet, you know, somehow Bravo's still sanctioning it, and somehow I'm still watching. And I, most days, I really hate myself for it. Um, oh, wow. <laughs> good Agreed. Below, below deck and, and top chef, perhaps most respectably. Well, we have a lot of actors to grind with Southern Charm, so we're going to have to invite mm -hmm. you back for just a special Southern <laughs> Charm episode. Please, what a group of entitled racists, frankly. And yet. <laughs> <laughs> I was scrolling through Netflix holiday movies just because I was like, I'm more, it's been September 1st. It's time. Let's get it going. And I'm scrolling and I don't have my glasses on and it's late at night and I'm going, 
is that Austin at a Netflix movie? And and Max is going, it's not Austin. It's too pretty to be Austin. And Austin should never, ever be in any of our Netflix holiday movies. <laughs> <laughs> but it was that just very generic, tall, blonde, right, right. very arrogant looking dude. And I was like, well, we're not watching this one, even if it's not Austin. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we also have the same politics when it comes to television and what we watch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so with that, let's do a Bonko Party game break. Today's game, right. I am calling Rate That Scandal. And I have okay, selected I'm, I'm I've selected eight events, Bravo events, that I think would be considered Bravo scandals through the years. And so you and Jessica, as our panel, are going to work collectively to rate these as the most scandalous to the least scandalous. Mm-hmm. Intriguing. Oh, okay. <laughs> and I purposely okay, and I purposely did not select anything where there's actual um, arrests and legal ramifications so <laughs> yeah because we have absolutely no legal fund with this podcast absolutely yeah. not <laughs> and i purposely uh went around anything with diana jenkins since she's sending cease and desist letters to everybody right <laughs> so yeah. i was careful and, and we'll just, yeah we'll add allegedly to everything we say Oh, of course, of course. So I'm going to give you the eight, and then I'm going to let you two decide where you want to place them. So Kindly hold. I'm looking for a pen and paper. I didn't know you were giving us eight. Well, I was going <laughs> to only try to do five, and then I was like, but gosh, I just, I had to, I felt like I had to be um, inclusive of the franchises that I know that we watch. <laughs> okay, fair. All right, I'm ready. Okay, in no particular order. Mm-hmm. Phaedra alleging that Candy has a sex dungeon and was drugging Portia. Just so I'm just so I'm sure, just so I'm clear, are we rating the scandal based on if it's true or just if it's a scandal? Um, how scandalous do you think it was in the Bravo universe? So, uh, most scandalous bravo moment moment to least scandalous bravo moment okay i'm ready the second one would be brooks faking his cancer uh three jill arriving unannounced to the island vacation and nearly giving alex a heart attack The reveal that Jax was sleeping with Kristen, and so Kristen was cheating on Tom Sandoval. The sprinkle cookies. Lisa's hot mic Salt Lake City moment uh, attacking Meredith. Lucy Lucy Apple Juicy. And finally, Sandy firing Hannah. So those are your eight. These are pretty good scandals. These are good. I think the only one I don't actually know is the sprinkle cookies. Oh, this dates back to the beginning of the Gorga Judice feud. 
where Melissa brought sprinkle cookies to the Christmas dinner. And Teresa was so offended that they were store-bought sprinkle cookies and she threw them away. (laughs) (laughs) I, I do make sprinkle cookies in the month of December to honor this moment. Okay. So she does. I mean, I've thought going to their house over the holidays because I'm not a good holiday person. Like don't uh-huh. miss me with the decorations, miss me with the family getting together. But the food is so good at the Casey and Matt mm-hmm. house. that even when, when, when Casey said it's almost time for Halloween, I started sending her recipes. So, you know, I, I've been, I've become a holiday convert across the board. Um, so I am going to, I have a ranking, but I'm going to defer to our guest um, first. Um, and then we can come back together and discuss where we are. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to not let my own starky, snarky nature predetermine this list. So what do you have for us? Well, it sort of depends on, we could select different criteria, right, to rank them completely differently. By way of sort of, Moral, <laughs> like if we're to judge this by some, some standard set of morals, I think Brooks's cancer is really up there um, as just an awful thing to lie about. But he's also just such an unlikable guy who was with such an unlikable woman, frankly. <laughs> um, and well, then, and then, question here, for you um, Does Brooks faking cancer is that? very directly related in your mind to Vicky getting fired from Orange County or certainly on the road to firing. And the second is since. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about? You insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. 
Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Media involvement. It was part of the definition of scandal. Is it hard in some ways because some of these happened before Twitter and social media had really taken off the way it is now? Right. No, that's a, that's a great point. Yeah, definitely, you know, based on sort of my book's conception of scandal, the Twitterverse does a lot of work for it now. Um, but I don't, you know, I think Vicky is so problematic on so many levels that I'm shocked. Well, am I shocked? Which will have Catherine on Southern Charm. Um, Bravo doesn't necessarily punish the people that need to be punished by uh, removing publicity from them. So I don't, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Uh, Jessica, I want to hear your first one. Am I completely wrong? <clears throat> well, this depends on our definition of scandal. So thank you for linking it to the media. I think in terms of just scandal, the first one is not that Phaedra had um, had said that Candy had a sex dungeon because in some ways that's well known allegedly. So the scandal being around the fact that Candy, might, that Candy and Todd might be drugging and raping Phaedra or tried, mm-hmm. or I had a plan to rape Phaedra. I think that goes right up there with... You mean um, Portia? Portia, sorry. Yeah. But Phaedra said that Candy and Todd had a plan to drug and then perhaps rape Phaedra. That's a different type of scandal. That's just like morally mm-hmm. reprehensible. And that's also why Phaedra was fired. There's also the kind of scandal that is morally reprehensible, but is great for business for Bravo. And for that reason, I would put... Brooks's cancer as number one because as, as reprehensible as it was, the scandal and the sensationalization of the scandal I mean, this is classic reality television. I'd almost put the Phaedra uh, uh, Portia and, and Candy scenario, I would actually almost put it outside of the competition um, just for a variety of reasons related to um, uh, uh, sex, sexual exploitation and 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 as a storyline, it, it really kind of flopped. Like, it mm-hmm. actually really flopped because so many people were, um, one, disgusted, two, there's a whole, whole sub-conversation about Black women being seen as victims. So I would almost put the, the candy fader, everything outside of, outside of a box. But Brooks and Cancer, certainly the first one. Certainly the first one. Well, um, I agree. Okay, so, so far, so good. <laughs> Does that mean you guys uh, lean toward the Phaedra, Portia, and Candy incident being like number two in terms of just the ruptures it created in the Bravo universe? I don't know yet, honestly, Casey. I don't know yet because really, what ruptures did it create? Um, yes, the black viewers were upset. Yes, a few white viewers were upset. Um, by firing Phaedra upset some and didn't matter at all. I think Nene Leakes alleging racism is a bigger scandal. Scandal slash with a payoff. Um, but again, tell me our criteria for scandal. Um, according to uh, Sana, can you tell us according to your book? Because I'm trying to go with that definition. 
Well, to be fair, you know, in the book, it's specifically with religion, right? So, so it has to do with hypocrisy, right? Professing mm. something and then acting differently. I'm not sure, actually, that ah. outside of, like, Brooks and maybe Lucy, Lucy, Apple, Lucy, um, that anything here is actually that far, so far outside of what the people profess. Like, I don't think Jax is being morally tortured for being a chief, you know? Like, that seems quite consistent with his, the rest of his personality. Or even, like, Sandy firing Han. I think, you know, Sandy would stand by her decision as she stands by all of her decisions. All of her decisions. Um, yeah, I the thing with say, Sandy is it seems hypocritical just within the larger Below Deck universe since it's uh, so different mm-hmm. from how Captain Lee had behaved in previous circumstances with his own crew. Even how Sandy is, Sandy is treated certain um, people. Um, I don't watch Below Deck much, but I definitely have, was on board for uh, Hannah, Hannah, Hannah. <laughs> what is it, Hannah, Hannah June? Um, for for the for the scandal. Um, I was I'm still with Brooks number one, with just kind of putting a bracket around the Candy Phaedra scandal for a second. I actually would think number two would be. And these are also based on what I'm interested in. I think number two might be Lucy Lucy. That's the I dog, agree. right? That's yeah. the dog, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think Lucy Lucy was quite the scandal. So we agree on that one? Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, the sprinkle cookies is a classic scandal because it really drove um, a few seasons of Housewives. So I don't know if I would put it three, but go ahead. No, and continues to, right? The feud mm-hmm. will never end. This is what the franchise is surviving on. And it really is. Wedding, right? Excluding Melissa. That's another... Spring yeah, it's an ongoing... Yeah, I think that deserves a, a spot. Hmm. So, do you now, want so now, Sprinkle Cookies to be number three? Yes. Let's, uh, let's enter that into the official record as number three. <laughs> So here's the problem going forward, and Casey knows this so well about me. I'm if I don't watch the show or I'm not mildly invested, I'm like, ugh. Um, everything else, I'm kind of only mildly invested in. Um, the Lisa Hot Mike story, because <clears throat> Lisa could arguably be called a fraud. I don't necessarily see it as a scandal. I actually would put Lisa dead last on my list. That everything in between three and seven is up for grabs. I can be swayed anyway to okay. to put to stack it up. Um, the the Hannah thing was the Hannah um, scandal. Uh, the Jill Zarin and the is it Alex Alex that had the so called heart attack or was she, it just, that just Jill re- showed up? Jill shows up and it's like hello, you know, and 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 she's like <laughs> trying to kind of get the rise, and so she's just like with her purse on her shoulder, walking right in, and they're trying to have relaxing. It was scandalous. They they were trying to have like a relaxing in. moment, and Alex is just her entire body just turns bright red, and she's shaking. Is in this her when chair. she stomps out? Does she stomp out in the big shoes? In this episode, or is that a different episode? Did that's a that's a different season where she's in her big Frankenstein shoes. shoes. Yeah. Okay. Oh, I miss Alice. Alice is doing quite well. She she got like a degree in psychology. Yeah, she's ABD now in her psychology doctorate. Mm-hmm. 
Yes, I would like to find a way to interview her. But we should really interview her. I I actually enjoyed Alex being on because of the tension. So um, I'm open to where we put that scandal. Okay, well, let's make it next. Because I'm I'm less invested in um, Jack. (laughs) Um, I I don't watch Vanderpump's a whole lot. So um, let's see. Who is unassigned? So we still have to assign Jill, Lisa's hot mic, H- Hannah's firing, and uh, Phaedra and Candy. Unless we want to take Phaedra, Candy, and Portia out of it entirely. I make these games and then Jessica always pushes back against the rules and I <laughs> just become flexible as we go. <laughs> yeah, I think that that one we just, that's just a, a, a different type of conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, a different height, a, a, le- a level of seriousness, right? Um, that we, I, I want to take that one out. I would be more willing to um, add, like, did she by Sheree copy the 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 shine <laughs> um, uh, outfits that's going on right now? Or we already right, read, right. we knew that uh, uh, Walter in the early seasons of of, of Kenya being on Housewives, we know he was hired. I think a greater scandal would be did Mark or Kendall, uh, Kenya just marry each other for publicity mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. whatever. I mean, Mark was a horrible person too. Um, okay, tell, run me the list again, Casey, where we've placed people and what is left. We have Brooks Baking Cancer, number one, Lucy Lucy Apple Juicy, number two, Sprinkle Cookies, number three, and then we have Jill Zarin. Jackson Kristen, Lisa's hot mic moment, and Sandy firing Hannah. I think that order works for me. So we've preserved the first and last, um, and then we've bracketed the Phaedra and Candy situation. Yeah, I'm not in, is invested in those those middle ones, so that works for mm-hmm. me. Okay. Did we win? Did Every, we win? Everybody's <laughs> always a big winner here. But um, yay. <laughs> Great Bonco party, everybody. <laughs> those were hard ones. I mean, those were like provocative ones. They weren't they weren't easy because we weren't Bravo watchers. They weren't easy because, huh, is that a scandal? And what does that mean? Like, what are the greater ramifications? Mm-hmm. So very nicely done, Casey. Yes. Very nicely yes. done. Yes, Max would have yeah. lobbied very Thank hard you. if we didn't have a sick toddler. Uh, so... <laughs> It was probably it was probably better that it was just the two of you. Uh, I oh, could have seen a... that getting very heated. <laughs> oh, the Vanderpump! The Vanderpump! I'm going to use Vanderpump now, Susanna, because you said Vanderpump. I love it. I'm going to use it because I just don't watch Vanderpump. Okay, and yeah. and and Max and Casey will have these fights that they try to draw me into. I don't watch it, so I don't know. We can talk about sprinkle cookies and Teresa. But but they have these knockdown drag out fights um, and and I don't know I don't know the answers so I already know Max would have we would have had a problem on some of these. Okay. <laughs> so um, you wrote an article for the Revealer in March 2020 titled "A History of Sex Abuse in the Protestant Imagination." Can you talk about this article and what you identified as structural abuse problems that you analyzed? Back to the fun topics. Um, uh, no, the, so this, I highly recommend this particular issue of the revealer because I wanted to push the conversation about sexual abuse 
beyond just the you know, Catholic Church, which has in many ways dominated sort of mainstream discussions. So I was very glad to contribute. And I highlighted some of the cases that I also discuss in the book, beginning with this Methodist minister that I already mentioned um, in our conversation, um, and fast forwarding to the scandal, the, the biggest celebrity preacher of the 19th century, the scandal of Henry Ward Beecher, who allegedly uh, slept with his close friend's wife in the 1870s, and it became the, the biggest sensation of the era. Um, and as I looked at those cases, I made the argument that abuse has been an epidemic in the Protestant establishment in the same way that it has recently been revealed to be in the Catholic Church. The difference was that from the start of the nation, Protestantism has been the de facto religion of the majority, and thus really well protected by, by both journalists who often hesitated to even cover the story, and then, of course, by these powerful denominational bodies as well. Um, historian Bob Orsi has called the Catholic crisis the Catholic normal because of just how prevalent he argues it is. And I would simply extend that to Protestants as well. Um, I argue in the book that these scandals have not just been aberrations in the history of Protestantism, but rather formed a persistent pattern in which charismatic authority apparently can cover a multitude of sins. Um, and even ministers who are very credibly accused and often convicted of their crimes somehow emerge victorious and regain their following. And they do this through a couple of avenues. First, by claiming that everyone is a sinner, and therefore their particular sin isn't anything special. And then secondly, they invoke the Christian duty to forgive their brethren, right? So we see this time and again with the televangelist scandals of the 1970s, 80s, and 90s. Uh, there's kind of a vague, tearful confession for some unspecified sin, even though we know that the sin is of sexual nature. And then a very swift reclamation of power and a refusal to actually meaningfully grapple with the very things that brought them to this place of reckoning to begin with. Okay, thank you for talking about your article. But also let me say this, let me talk about how the sausages are made here. Casey often does our treatment um, after reading people's questionnaires, doing the research, and I see that I've been set up with this next question. This is really a quick Casey question, but she put it under the name of Jessica. So you just mm. <laughs> so you just talk about sex abuse, impregnation, imagination. This is brilliant what you did right here. Um, so in season five of Real Housewives of Potomac, Giselle Bryant was rekindling her romance with with ex husband Pastor Jamal Bryant, but then was rocked by a cheating scandal where he impregnated another woman. So this wasn't the first cheating scandal scandal as it relates to Jamal and, and, and Giselle. I would like to say, or the script is telling me to say, can you analyze this scandal on the various relationship and community dynamics at play? This is a brilliant setup. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> so Giselle's ex-husband, Jamal Bryant, who's the pastor of New Birth Missionary Baptist Church that Jessica already mentioned in this episode. It's a mega church that has been marred in controversy long before Jamal took over as head pastor. Um, in fact, one of the previous pastors, um, the aggressively homophobic Bishop Eddie Long, 
Eddie Along. We talk, call him in the community, Eddie Along. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he was pastor of that church from 1987 to 2017. Um, he faced a scandal of his own in 2010 when four young men accused him of coercing them into inappropriate sexual relationships when they were still teenagers. Long, much like these evangelicals that I just mentioned, right, denied all allegations and cried persecution dramatically. Um, And the majority of his congregation stood by him. Uh, And maybe we shouldn't be shocked by this, uh, given the way that religious authority um, and a particular form of Protestant religious authority has allowed men like Long to use and abuse that power for generations. Um, Jamal Bryant, of course, has never faced any consequences for his own marital infidelity from either his current church or his previous church. His former congregation, which belonged to the African Methodist Episcopal Church, which is the largest historically black denomination in the U.S., um, never investigated his divorce from Giselle because they said no one came, there was no victim, right? No one came forward with any claims against him. Um, and then the new congregation seems to have fully forgiven and embraced their charismatic new pastor as well. There's a great article about the connection between the two men and the broader implications of the scandals for um, misogyny and homophobia among certain religious groups by Ahmad Green Hayes that I recommend that people read. Um, oh, I'm writing this add, Yeah, uh, it should be. Hopefully we can uh, put it in the show notes through the, the link to um, Ahmad's work and, and other people's work. But from my own um, study, too, what, what interests me are the mechanisms by which Charisma and allegiance mm-hmm. to a pastor's personality can can really cover up a lot, and in, in this age that, that we all live in, but so obsessed with celebrity. And one of the final takeaways from my book is a call, perhaps a desperate call, to let scandal once again shake us out of complicity and actually do something about this abuse that that we. Um, observed through scandal, but I'm not sure how effective the, the call will be. Wow. Um, I, I Listen, I love the fact that you can draw these connections from the 19th century to the mm-hmm. present-day present church. Um, I, will, I will share this. I was part of a sister church to um, New Birth, and there was this mm-hmm. rupture at some point where we radically broke from New Birth. And no one ever really knew why. I'm not saying it's because mm-hmm. pastor got wind of this, but it was a it was a rupture. Um, the church basically did it about faith and actually left the full gospel movement as well. But I, I think it's directly related to things that were going on in New Birth. Um, just to let you know that we here also on the cutting edge of, of, of scandal work here in Historians on Housewives. But this is just, <laughs> this is so interesting. Um, yeah. Wow, so, that was a great setup, Casey. I'm just going back to that was a brilliant setup. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so picking up on this conversation of charisma and church leaders and also issues of abuse, I want to talk about Mary Cosby. We never get to see Giselle mm-hmm. as a preacher's wife on Potomac, but we do see Mary in that role, charismatically leading her congregation. And so... I was wondering how we should think about scandals surrounding Mary marrying her grandfather, rumors that she, you know, has 
abused various congregants in, in a myriad of ways that we've heard on the show. Um, what do we do with these accusations that the other housewives make that she's a cult leader? In what ways do you think Mary might be representative of historical trends wherever you want to dig in um, and whatever you want to say about Mary? Um, I think this would be really helpful to tie th- things together. Yeah, what a revelation. When I remember watching the, the first clip of Paul Plake, and I mean, everybody was buzzing about Mary Cosby Talk. Um, and she's obviously fascinating in all kinds of ways. But you can see in the few clips we get with her uh, congregation, we can see how her charisma really, really appeals to her parishioners, right? She is this magnetic personality. Um, and she's, of course, married to her late grandmother's husband. Um, so not exactly her grandfather, but um, there's also a longer history of these kinds of arranged marriages within Pentecostal communities. My friend, uh, who's a PhD candidate at Yale, about to finish, Amber Dromgu has a great article about uh, the long tradition of arranged Pentecostal marriages that have, as she points out, in some ways allowed women to claim greater authority within the church, but also often made women obviously vulnerable to both structural and also domestic abuse. Um, Mary's ministry is fascinating because her charismatic authority reminds me quite a bit of, of many celebrity female preachers from the past. Um, there was, when, when the show first aired, there was almost a moral panic about Mary and her quote-unquote cult. Again, that word that I don't find particularly useful. But if we look at the longer history of charismatic religious leaders in the Protestant uh, denominations, we see very similar patterns in women like Amy Semple McPherson, who had her four-square church that you can still visit in Los Angeles today. Um, in the 1920s, or for instance, Catherine Kuhlman, who was the healing evangelist, uh, who really rose to prominence in the 70s. Or less obviously, if you look at like Joel Osteen's wife, right? All of these mega uh, church ministers' wives who build their own empires through their husbands' ministries, but who never sort of formally claim uh, ministerial authority because they also believe in these notions of, of, you know, the men being at the top um, of any kind of arrangement. Kate Bowler writes about this in her latest book, The Preacher's Wife, which is great. Um, so in, in terms of my research and teaching, Mary Cosby is just a fascinating example of how charisma, again, affects congregations and how these the Christian tradition of having allegiance to tradition and authority and this kind of belief in a certain form of prosperity gospel allows someone like her to thrive in today's marketplace of religion. That's a great answer. I mean, I always look at Mary Cosby and I look at the irony. Yep, I'm going to hell on this one. I look at the irony of women who are in the LDS church talking about Mary leading a cult or it being Mm -hmm. a for-profit. I mean, do you understand that the LDS church now is like the second richest church in the world? Mm-hmm. Um, I just find the irony about who's pointing fingers about religion in Salt Lake so fascinating. But I also didn't know about this trend in Pentecostal religions or in evangel- Protestant religions of, of women kind of, there being a trend that women are amassing their fortunes and 
there's these arranged marriages. So you just, mm-hmm. if I had the emoji with my mind being blown right now, <laughs> my mind is Thank blown. I, I had no idea. So, wow. Okay. So we obviously love teaching and talking about Bravo because obviously as this podcast shows today, it can spark great conversations and offer an example of how course content is still relevant in the present. Is there any particular Bravo clip that you find useful in the classroom? So this is sort of edited by Bravo. It's not a clip from the show itself, um, but it's a series of interviews with the ladies of Salt Lake. We're talking a lot about Salt Lake today. Um, But it's great because it very briefly just goes over LDS culture and history from the inside, right? Dispels some common myths about the Uh religion. The first question people ask you when they find out if you're from Utah is, are you Mormon and are you polygamist? I consider myself Mormon 2.0. I'm Mormon. Yeah, I grew up Molly Mormon. I am not Mormon. Proud to be Jewish, but I'm, I'm not a very religious person. I was raised Mormon. I converted to Islam. Mormonism is a uniquely American religion. It was founded by the first Mormon prophet, Joseph Smith, and it has grown exponentially. And now there's more than six million members throughout the world. A quick lesson on how to be a good Mormon. Don't drink, don't swear, treat your body like a temple. The Mormon temple is elaborate and ornate in its purity. You have beautiful chandeliers, you have well-lit stained glass windows, like open air, but you don't have gold and you don't have marble. You don't have all of the kind of like trappings of wealth. To go into what I call the pretty buildings, you need to follow the rules of the church. You have to answer a rigorous set of questions by two different men every two years to enter the temple. You know, I'm not an expert on the Mormon church. I'm probably the worst person to ask. There are a cap sleeve shirt that you wear under your bra that you tuck in and you wear these bike shorts. It's an outward symbol of your commitment to God. So if you're not wearing the sacred underwear, you don't love God. Oh my gosh, there's so many misconceptions about Mormons that we're polygamists, that we all share a husband, that women don't work outside the home, and that we all have six to eight children. Not a lot of that's true though. I think people think Mormons aren't fun. I mean, I own a tequila brand. How can you say Mormons are fun? You're not supposed to drink, but just like every other religion, there are reformed Mormons called Jack Mormons, and many of them do drink. A closet bar is a thing in Utah. You set up a bar in one of the closets so no one sees you drinking. I think another misconception is everyone eats green jello. Actually, that's true. Everyone does eat green jello here in Utah. That's true. Um, mm-hmm. What you were saying, Jessica, just now, too, reminds me, you know, L- early LDS church was persecuted precisely because they were considered a cult, right? So, again, this mm-hmm. irony of, of uh, these women um, coming and up to And they still are. They still are. Right, right. Um, and I know the clip, let me just say that I know the clip you're talking about. And I thought that the, that discussion, that kind of history lesson, was really well done. So I'm glad to hear that you 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 also think that it's a very helpful clip. But please continue. Tell us about this clip. It's, just, it's a really nice again two minute thing, but you get all kinds of topics that are really highlighted that I think could be then effectively discussed in class, right? Both in terms of like what are the stereotypes associated with 
of, of you know, LDS in the U.S., but also we have Islam and Judaism, Mary's very particular kind of Pentecostal Christianity. In general, the Salt Lake Housewives offer multiple really interesting entry points into the discussion of the religious diversity in, in the country. I think That's Salt Lake great. City Thank has you. been one of the best franchises for teaching moments. It just is a gift mm-hmm. that keeps on giving in so many ways. Um, it's it's been I mean, it's been an exciting franchise to have in the repertoire. But yeah, don't you yeah. think don't you think Casey that it's been exciting because people are more comfortable talking about how weird or inclusive Salt Lake is? They're more, we're going back to Southern Charm, they're more comfortable talking about this kind of weird outlying religion, but making it seem more normalized. I think they've made Salt Lake look pretty normal. Um, people are more comfortable kind of digging that up than they are dealing with the legacies that um, is holding Southern Charm together. Because there's some deep things on Southern Charm that you don't get to. They don't give a qualifying, unless I missed it, they don't give a qualifying lecture associated with Southern Charm saying, now, back in the slave South, this happened. Mm-hmm. Right. Whereas right. in Salt Lake, it's like, and then the Mormon church says X, Y, and Z. I think there's also something to be said about American historical memory and what topics are on are off limits and what topics are, are, are up for grabs, right? Yeah. Um, it's also just yeah. interesting the way that histories of colonialism and empire are embedded into Salt Lake when they talk about their family mm-hmm. histories and mm-hmm. and missionary work. So I it's it's interesting to me the ways that we can sit with Salt Lake City in particular and pull different themes out to for pretty much any topic in 19th century mm-hmm. US history especially. So fun question or at least I think it's a fun question. One of my favorites. Uh, we've talked about different Bravo Liberty or yeah, we've have talked about different Bravo Liberties at this point in different shows. Um, so we need to know who your favorite Bravo, Bravo Liberties are and why, uh, how do they make it to the top of your list? Right. And I, I will preface this by saying that very few people on Bravo are purely aspirational. Um, they all have a lot of flaws, <laughs> as we have discussed. I think, you know, I watched the, um, what, what do they call it, Housewives Girl Trip, the Berkshires uh, with Phaedra being back. And she's just a delight, despite, you know, what she did to Candy and the vile things she said. Um, I just truly, I, think, I just think she's hilarious. I think Portia Williams is, is hilarious. I'm sad she's not on the season of Atlanta. Uh, when I first started uh, New York, I thought mistakenly that Luann was just truly an example of class and the way that she dealt with Ramona. I have since reversed my position. But that's the beauty, I think, of the franchise, right? Like, you can really hate them one day, and then the next week you're laughing because they're doing something completely ridiculous and delightful. Um, I, have also, I will say that what's been important to me on a lot of these shows is um, the just rep- I'm sure you've talked about this before, but it's not often that you see older women, older flawed women on television being themselves, and I just will always root for that. Um, but I've also gotten really invested in some of their friendships that 
in many ways seem way more intimate, uh, and I don't mean this salaciously, but genuinely intimate than the relationships that some of these women seem to share with their male partners and husbands. Um, and I, I sometimes joke about how the hardest breakup I've ever been through was when Jill Zarin and Bethany Frankel stopped speaking. So, so that's, that was that's such a traumatic season. It was right. hard. It was so hard to watch them yeah. go through that. I agree. But I love this this comment about their friendships because especially with New York, there was always so much depth to Ramona and Sonia. But then the way that mm-hmm. Ramona, uh, not Ramona, but Luann and Sonia would be on vacations. You know, like it was, mm-hmm. there was just always such a range and um, a lot of, intimacy between these members um in a you know even the Tamara and Vicky relationship I mean I don't I don't really know that I have a friend that I would let pee on my bed and then still sleep in it (laughs) I I think that's a good thing I think that's a good thing yeah yeah and you know it obviously didn't make it to the aired footage if it happened but even just the way that Ramona became a little incontinent in her final season Uh but no one really they were like (laughs) oh that's just Ramona we love her for it you know and so it's like these things of there's um elements of like real genuine relationships happening even around all of the ways that the shows are produced yeah I think that there's also a point, yes, Casey, I agree completely, and I'm going to put this together in this kind of way to say that this comment about um, uh, older women, older women on TV, I never thought I would be at that age where I'm like, oh, okay. But the fact that they dress up, they can be glamorous, um, you know, I think that that this is also important about the housewives that I hadn't really thought Mm -hmm. about until this moment. It creates a particular kind of avenue even though they all end up glam, glam at the end, um, you know, initially it's very forgiving about different body types and then they all yeah. go on diets, but the problems with getting older. Um, yeah. Who else is going to talk about, about it peeing on things? Um, <laughs> bravo, bravo. I, I rarely say, <laughs> okay, bravo. You just, you, you, you move this into a positive type conversation. Um, but yeah, what happens to women's bodies, the kind of changes you have to make, the decisions you have to make, like what a young Sonia would do versus an older Sonia or what a drunk Sonia would do versus a sober Sonia. Um, Luann is just going to be Luann. Um, okay. Okay. <laughs> so this brings us to our coffee clutch moment. So Susanna, can you provide your recommendations for further readings as a compendium to this episode and we can do links in the show notes um what do you suggest people should read if they want to dive deeper into the topics that you've talked about today i'd absolutely love to one of the pleasures of academia is sharing your friend's work um and and these people have really formed my own thinking and and have said much smarter things than i could ever say so um on the Black Church and Queer Scandals and Masculinity, uh, read Wallace Beth, Ahmad Green Hayes, and mm-hmm. Amber Dromgold. On Prosperity Gospel, Kate Bowler has a delightful book called Bless. And then Emily Suzanne Johnson. Kate, you're probably familiar with her work because you, you write about similar things with women's uh, 
uh, conservative women's leadership. She has a book called This Is Our Message. And then she also has an article specifically dedicated to the televangelist scandal of Jim and Tammy Faye Baker um, mm. that I also write about in my book. On broader issues of gender, race, politics, and U.S. evangelicals, uh, by Kristen Dumais' book, Jesus and John Wayne. Oh, it's such a, a New good York book. Times bestseller. Which so is, smart. Which is so rare. Yeah, it's so rare for history books to, to make it to the New York Times book. So, yay, Kristen. Um, and on this idea, well, again, the idea of labeling something as a cult, read Matthew Schmaltz's article in The Conversation, and then listen to Megan Goodwin's and Elise Morgenstein's first podcast, Keeping It 101. It's a great podcast about all things religion in the U.S. and beyond. Thank you so much. That's a, that's a great list that gives so many entry points for people. That's great. So... Susanna, can you tell us what's next for you and what you want people to know about your upcoming work? How can people get in touch with you if they want to learn more? You can follow me on Twitter at uh, F-U-Z-Z-Z-A-N-N-A, my name with a couple extra Z's thrown in. Follow my updates. I can't promise that they're always academic. In fact, mostly they're just nonsense. Um, if you're not on Twitter, my website usually has my latest information, SuzannaKirvulska.com. I would definitely encourage people to read my forthcoming book when it does get published. Again, Disgrace, How Sex Scandals Transform American Protestantism. I'm also going to be producing some more public-facing scholarship in the next year. Uh, it was just announced yesterday that I'm a 2022-2023 PRRI fellow in religion and LGBTQ rights. So I'll be writing about um, Congratulations! Thank you. Thank you. That's so exciting. Um, yeah, yeah. I, right now, I have a very vague idea of what this actually entails, but I'm excited to be researching and writing again publicly on all things religion, sexuality, and queerness. Um, mildly related, but but I wanted to plug this as well. I'm currently obsessed with the remake of A League of Their Own on Prime Video. Yes, it's we can talk. Let's talk. <laughs> yes, yes. It's a great, I mean, okay, I have to take off my historian hat when I watch because nobody talks like this in the 1940s. The ideas that the show has about sexuality that it sort mm -hmm. of superimposes onto the time. I just have to turn that off and then just delight in how good and queer it is, how inclusive it is, right? Even though the leagues were segregated, they're bringing in black stories in this really meaningful way. Um, and so I'm just a huge fan. And so uh, with my friends, Kat and Crystal, um, Kat, who's an expert on baseball, Crystal, who's an expert and a comic book artist herself, we decided to create a recap podcast of the show. Um, the episodes will start coming out weekly very soon. And the oh, podcast is called We Are All Fruit. <laughs> well, based <laughs> on what Greta Gill says when they get selected to be the Rockford teacher. So you can follow us on Twitter at uh, w A A F pod. We are all free pod. Um, and I'll post links once the first episode is posted. That's great. That's a super exciting new podcast. I can't wait to listen. Thank I, you. I, and I leave the uh, league of their own. I, as soon as I watched it, I sent Casey a text and said, have you watched? She's like, I, I have a toddler. I was like, no, I need an opinion from an expert about if it's inclusive, if it's this, if it's that. Mm -hmm. I thought they did a very good job. I mean, again, don't watch it like a historian. But I thought right. it was pretty compelling. So I am going to be listening to your podcast. 
I love it. Welcome into the cult. I'm just kidding. I would never use that word. (laughs) (laughs) I got it. I got it. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us today. As always, you can find us at historiansonhousewives.com where you can propose your own episode topic, ask us questions, and send us feedback. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at historiansh. And don't forget that you can like and review the podcast on your podcast platform. You can also find us at our Etsy shop, Historians Housewives. This episode was powered by Acast. Thank you, Susanna Krivelskaya. This show is brought to you with the support by Barbara and Mark Spear, Saddleback Community College, Dr. Joaquin Galarza, Courtney Crow, Lara Loper, Kim Bettendorf, Luis Asio de Dios, and the Agipon Foundation. And remember, scholars do bravo too. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.